I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be able to speak to you this evening. Pray that the things that uh, we'll have to say will be beneficial to you, that will edify you, and will help build us up. In John, the 19th chapter, verse uh, 38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? What is truth? We're going to be talking about truth, and we're going to be talking about feelings tonight. Something that affects all of us. Both of those do. So do we agree on what the truth is? Is there, can we ever have a consensus where everybody agrees on what the truth is? I, I would say here in this audience this evening that yes, we could have a consensus on that. We believe the truth is God, God's word in its entirety. And that we can't pick and choose parts of it. Some are good, some are bad, some we believe, some we don't. It's either all true or none of it's true. And then feelings. And feelings are, feelings are crazy. Just as different people are different, then all their feelings are different. And then there's a variable. So we have a constant and we have a variable. One of the things that I say quite often, uh, I guess so often that people know by what's Mark's favorite thing to say, what it's going to be, is that truth trumps feelings. This is a statement I say often because feelings are not always right. As a matter of fact, feelings quite often can be wrong. But we have to have a source to go to uh, to temper those things. You know, feelings are not all bad. Um, I believe that they were created for us as part of the image of God. We can read about all the different feelings that God has. In Genesis, the first chapter, beginning at verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, he, him, male and female, he created them. Sometimes we often wonder what the image is that the scripture talks about. Is it that we have a soul? Is it that we have choices? Is it that we have understanding that we're different? Is it that we have a soul? What is it? I believe there's a lot of things that make up that image. And I believe feelings are one of those. In Psalms 106 and verse 40, it says, Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people, so, he, so that he abhorred, abhorred his own inheritance. We don't often maybe think about God... <coughs> as being angry. There's a few times that we read about it, and when he is angry, his actions have been severe. But I think the world today wants to think about God just as loving, that he can't be angry, he's not going to be angry. But Scripture says uh, different things. In Romans the 5th chapter and verse 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. 
in that while we were uh, still sinners, Christ died for us. We all know that God loves us and that God has the emotion of love. In Psalms 11 and verse 5, it talks about the emotion or the feeling of hate that God has. Um, Psalms 11 and 5 said, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. In Exodus, it talks about God's compassion. Um, He said, Then I will make my goodness pass before you, as he talks to Moses. And I think this is a beautiful verse. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion to whom I will have compassion. God experiences grief. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And God also experiences joy. Another beautiful passage that talks about how God feels about his creation, about you and about me. It says in uh, Zephaniah 3 and verse 17, The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. How often do you think about that? That God rejoices over you. He will quiet you with His love, and He will rejoice over you with singing. Is that not awesome? Music is a big part of our life. Music something God asked for. Music something that we use to edify one another. But how often do we think about God singing over us? That He loves us, that He is thrilled that we are His creation. Probably not often enough. So can you imagine a life without feelings? These feelings that God has, we have. They're used different, undoubtedly, because God doesn't sin. God doesn't uh, use those, those feelings rashly, like we do. You know, at first consideration, I toyed around with the idea that all these feelings that we struggle with uh, as humans and as Christians who are trying to do the right thing didn't come along until after the fall. But more inspection, I decided really it's the struggle with the feelings that happened after the fall. Because Eve, Eve had to have feelings to be able to be tempted. She had to have desires, right? Because the very definition of sin is in uh, James 1 and 14. And it says, each one of us, when he is tempted is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So if Eve had not had desires, right, to maybe eat the fruit, if she hadn't desired something different, maybe to be like God, just maybe to be different than what she was, she wouldn't have been able to be tempted. So feelings, I believe, came along with the creation. When it talks about um, when we're drawn away by our own desires or lust. That word, actually translated, talks about desire, especially especially when it's forbidden. I thought that was kind of strange. The especially when it's forbidden. It seems like that's an extra longing 
You know, you tell a kid not to do something, probably the first thing they're going to do. We told not to do something, does it place a level of enticement there? Does it make us wonder? So feelings are great, aren't they? Like, they cause so much problems for us, but yet they're also good. However, feelings were involved in David's famous sin. You remember he went out uh, on the balcony and he saw Bathsheba, and he wanted her, and he had her brought to her. And the whole story is full of feelings, full of emotion, and how David wanted to deal with that sin and what problems it caused. There were feelings involved uh, between Cain and Abel. You remember Abel offered a good sacrifice, and God was pleased with him, but he, with Cain's he wasn't. So what happened? And I, I want us to think about, we think that is just uh, detestable, and, and how could he do that? But have you ever tried to do something in a spiritual sense that you failed at or that you weren't very good at? And yet you see your brother or your sister do that very well. What's your feelings? What's your feelings? Are your feelings towards that person all of a sudden tainted because they've succeeded at what you tried to? Often I think that's what our response is. Instead of encouraging or inspecting our life to try to do better, we harbor resentment towards someone who does better at things than we could. And certainly feelings were involved in the fall of Satan out of heaven. It was part of the problem, right? He exalted himself. He lifted himself up. He wanted more. He wanted to be more. He wanted to be more than God. And God cast him out of heaven. So God gave us feelings as a good thing, right? So why do we struggle with feelings so much? And I believe the answer is because we neglect to do one thing that Scripture tells us. In 1 John, uh, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, there's some people who's going to tell the truth. There's some people that are going to tell lies. There's probably more lying goes on in the name of truth than we care to realize. But because we fail to take that information and compare it to this, the source of truth, the very truth... When we don't do that, then we assume the truth, and we get into trouble. We're gullible. We want to believe, right? We want to believe people. So how do we try the spirits? We go to the Bible. If our feelings match what the Bible says is good, then we're good. But if they don't, if the Bible contradicts what our feelings are, then we need to dig into them we need to dig into our heart, and we need to find the truth. So why is this practice of trying the Spirit so important? In Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, and verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Why would they write that? Why was Jeremiah inspired to write that? Do you remember in his time, and he's called the weeping prophet. He lived in a horrible time. 
when people were turning against God, when he thought he was probably the only one left to serve God, God reminded him he wasn't, but it was, he was witnessing on a daily, uh, a daily level, probably multiple times a day, how people's hearts can turn against God. And you know, I've said before, when you believe a lie, if you believe a lie, it's not a lie to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't believe it, right? When you believe it, it's the truth to you. And that's how feelings work, and that's why they're so dangerous. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, in verse 15, Christ said, For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And in Mark 7 and 21, he says, from, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. Left unchecked, this heart that we have, this mind, this opportunity for choice, this storage of our feelings would be rotten without God. And God knows that. So feelings can trap us in sin just because of the way we feel. I found it very interesting, too, in this, uh, doing this study that Job actually referenced Adam's handling of sin uh, when he was going through his turmoil. In Job 31, beginning at verse 33, he says, If I have covered my transgression as Adam... By hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared a great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families, so that I kept silence and did not go out the door. When we break that down and we explore how different are we in the way that we handle sin. Because of a transgression, we hide it in our heart. We keep silent because of what people will think about us. We don't confess it, and we isolate. Does that happen today? Same response Adam had. And the response that Job talked about. So it's not lost on me that we do the very same thing. So the scripture says, and we talk about, or I talk about, especially in our study groups that, that we have, how we're to confess our faults to one another. And we're to pray for one another that we will be healed. But what is our natural inclination? It's to keep it here. It's to keep it hid. It's to isolate. It's to not talk. And so then we have no, no resources Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, and verse 7, another area about our feelings. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's pretty powerful, because if a man thinks in his heart that he's not good, he's not good. If a man thinks in his heart that he is, then he will be. But feelings influence our lives so much. And it's why it's so important that we try them by the scriptures. We also have to be aware that sin is progressive, that it grows bigger 
and bigger and, and, and worse the longer that we participate in it. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, in verse 13, it says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So I want to look at, at a few feelings uh, this evening uh, that truth trumps, okay? Things that I've experienced, things my family's experienced, things that I, we've just seen. So the first one is, and it's, it's a hot topic today in politics and in society, feelings that the Bible got gender and identity wrong. And we're talking about feelings, right? We're talking about the way people feel about these subjects. So homosexuality and gender issues, it's the most extreme case of this example, but it's also the most complicated. It's one that I have experience with, and it's one that the world is so caught up in. And I think we've shunned the opportunity to talk on this. Um, we talk about it being hard to discuss, and it has been and it is, but we have to get to a point where what the Bible discusses, we can discuss. We have to be able to teach what the Bible teaches. Otherwise, we're left to ourselves, right? We need to be taught, and I think we have, to confess our faults, to be able to share this, to be able to talk about all of our sins with people. Because that's the way that we're healed. That's the way we grow close. And that's the way we encourage others to follow Christ. So, today, psychologists and counselors will tell you that here, in America at least, there's 70 different genders. We don't understand that, right? But I can promise you, besides a few people who want attention, that there are complicated feelings in these people's lives. Right? There needs to be some compassion, even though we don't understand. They didn't arrive at this place overnight. They didn't suddenly decide that they wanted to be a homosexual or that they wanted a different gender. And we may not have had the understanding, but we need to develop and understand it. And so, when this happens to our friends, to our families, to people that, that maybe we don't even know, it's a shame when, in the church, that we go outside the church, we go to so-called science, we go to people who don't have the beliefs that we have, and we seek help. Now, how many sinful situations... And I'll just say that the Bible treats that as a sin. How many sinful situations do we do that in? How much help do we seek outside of Scripture and outside of our family? So a lot of times this happens, I know, because the Bible says there's only two genders. There's male and there's female. doesn't talk about it anymore. In Genesis, the first chapter in verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And in Matthew, the 19th chapter, beginning at verse 4, 
It says, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? So that's it. God created two genders. And yes, it says in the beginning, but it doesn't ever say that he added any more. Right? So that's not the option. I believe everything else outside of that is behavior. It's a behavior. Leviticus, the 20th chapter, beginning at verse 13, it says, If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion, and their blood shall be on them. Now you may ask, why? why? That's not what we're talking about. I read that because people will say that um, part of what calls homosexuality a sin is in the old law. I read that because that's probably a shocker, right? For a man to lie with his daughter-in-law. Nobody thinks that's right. Nobody thinks that's an alternate choice that we have, right? Uh, Verse 14 of that chapter says, If a man marries a woman and her mother, they have uh, created wickedness. I would agree. Nobody says that this is an alternate choice. I don't know anybody who's married a woman and her mother. Do you? So part of the arguments that those don't apply anymore kind of doesn't hold water. The actual verse is, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. So, just from experience, and I think as a means of understanding, um, there's a lot of things that take place between birth and when a person decides that they want to express themselves as a homosexual, uh, gay, or a lesbian. There's a lot of feelings. There's a lot from thou shalt not to this is me. There's a lot in between there. And people in the church know the, the thou shalt not, right? We can, we can talk about that over and over. Thou shalt not. So that's not always enough without understanding, without compassion, without mercy and grace. So if we choose to live like the world says that we can live, then... As a Christian, we have to justify who we are if the Bible doesn't line up with what our life is. But the Bible says that choice is a sin. And in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And many times we stop there, right? That's, we've made our point. But even beyond this, the scripture gives hope. It gives hope to those people whose behavior involves these things. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter and verse 11, it says, And such were some of you. So what does that mean? It means that they're not that way anymore. 
and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So all of the time, it's not about not being a behavior, but it's about being who. It's about being whose we are. It's about knowing whose we are and understanding what that means. It's that our our identity should be in Christ. In Colossians, the third chapter, uh, beginning at verse 3, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So truth, truth trumps feelings, right? And people will tell you, and I've, I've, been amongst, I've been amongst it, I've been amongst the people, and they will say, I would never choose this, right? So, to people who don't understand that, that's, that's kind of crazy, right? But sometimes we discover things, and things happen, or things don't happen in our adolescence as we're growing up. We miss out on things. There's something missing in our heart that God's not able to be there because of those situations. And so people feel, we're talking about feelings, people feel like that's who they are. But I can tell you that truth trumps feelings and God does not make people that way. Feeling that sin doesn't cause death. So because of those choices, based on false information or lies that cause us to rationalize our life and our choices and our actions, we have to change who God is. You either have to change who God is or you have to reject God. Bottom line, if you're condemned by the person you serve as God, you can't live that way. You can't continue to profess that this is my God You have to change him in your mind, or you have to say, I no longer believe this. So my first statement was, I believe the Bible, for the most part, I just don't know about these things, right? What things? The things that condemn us? The things that God said is not right? But that's not what Scripture says. We have to be open enough honest enough to be able to take a look at what Scripture says and make decisions where our life is different. Why is my heart not feeling these things? In Romans, the sixth chapter, in verse 23, Scripture plainly says, for the wages of sin is death. In James 1 and 15, in the definition of sin, it says when, when the desire has, has conceived and sin is born, Uh, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. 
In Genesis 2 and 17, uh, God told Adam and Eve, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Now people will look at that and say, They didn't die that day. They lived for quite a while, hundreds of years, as a matter of fact. But they died. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. They no longer had that relationship. And ultimately, they physically died. But more than this, we have to recognize living in sin is a slow death. It's slow and it's painful. Every time we do those things, a little more of us dies. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 17, it says, This I say, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Listen, having their understanding darkened. That's what happens when we live in sin. Having your understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, it's a slow death. Who being past feeling, it's a painful death. And finally you don't feel. There is no, and I can testify, I've been there, and I've talked about the fact that things that I were, was doing should have bothered me. And I knew they should have because I'd spent all my life in, in church. But they no longer bothered me. It's what living in sin does. In 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter in verse 2, it says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So if you're determined enough to do what you want to do, to do what you feel like you can do, what you feel like you can get away with, what you feel like is who you are, your conscience will eventually not work. It's seared. That means it's got a crust over it, and it's not penetrable. In Proverbs, the 16th chapter, and verse 25, it says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And there's that death again, that sin causes death. So the Scriptures counters the feeling that sin doesn't cause death. There's the truth. The truth trumps feelings. Sin causes death. It causes it every day, every moment, every action that you choose to remain in a sinful state. If we're holding out hope that sin doesn't cause death and we're wagering our life choices on it, then we better start looking at how to heal our hearts and how to understand what that death is. So another set of feelings that truth trumps is that we can't let go of our hurts and our struggles. How often do we hang on to that? These are serious feelings. Like in the moment that someone's hurt you, in the moment that you have a severe illness or that you're having difficulties at work or you're having relationship issues that you can't um, reconcile, those are big. They're painful. And they make us focus on them, just like a bullseye. 
And I understand that feeling and and how we sometimes want to to hold on to that because if we're not careful, that's who we become. We become the injured party. We become the victim. We become the hurt itself. We identify with that and we want to wallow in it. And sometimes we're even prideful about how bad we've been hurt or how much we've been hurt. And that nobody's ever been hurt like me, right? But that's not true. It's not true. People are hurt all the time. In Psalms, the 34th chapter, in verse 19, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, in the moment, that seems like a far stretch, that the Lord delivers them out of all those. While we're hurting, it doesn't seem possible. In 2 Corinthians, the 4th chapter, beginning at verse 8, it says, We're hard-pressed on every side yet not crushed, were perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You know, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, um, hurting and disappointments are part of life. As a Christian, we need to have a different mindset about that, about what that is. It's actually opportunity for us to want to seek God, to be closer to Him, to learn to grow, to exercise patience. The Scripture's full of how we're tried by fire, just like a refiner refines gold, how the dross is scraped off. So impurities are purged from our life out of struggles. In 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, beginning at verse 10, It says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. It's God's plan that we have these trials, right? Not that he caused them, but that he can make us benefit out of them. And he'll let us suffer for a little bit, he'll let us struggle. But then he will establish, strengthen, and settle you. Pretty amazing, considering all the things, all those fiery darts that you talked about this morning being thrown at us. So what is our attitude? What should it be? In James, the first chapter, beginning at verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Truth trumps feelings. We're going to hurt, but the truth is, sometimes it's good for us. And ultimately, God is going to settle us. So another set of feelings we can't, is that we can't control our desires. And even worse, we expect our children to sow their wild oats. So, is that far-fetched for you to hear? Do you know people who've said that? Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. It's going to happen. So, sadly, we've taken a view that this is expected, that our kids will just go do what they want to, but then later, they'll be okay. But when... when uh, can't speak here. When wild oats are sown, 
Sometimes that's what they have for breakfast for years and years and years and years. It's dangerous. You see, because there's things that are learned, there's things that are experienced, things that may not, they may not want to leave. There's some things that happen that people never walk back out of. So a sad fact that parents expect it so they never talk to their kids about their expectations or about what God expects from them and about what their identity is and about why they shouldn't do those things. So while boys may be girl, <laughs> boys may be boys and girls may be girls, that was a slip of the tongue. Kids will be kids. Let me tell you the more powerful statement, the devil will be the devil. And he will be there. And if you don't talk to your kids about those things, he's got somebody waiting that will. If you don't understand what your children need for social development, for healing, for complete normal adolescence, and are willing to talk to them, willing to provide that for them, willing to do the things that are uncomfortable, he's got somebody waiting if you don't. And that's, that's the harsh, sad reality. So we have to step up, right? We have to step up and, and talk to our kids and encourage them and make them uh, know who God is, teach them about Him, and prepare them, and for them to be able to communicate with us. Now, I'm, I'm telling the truth here, but I didn't do that, right? I, I didn't have that environment where I felt comfortable and safe talking about my struggles and about how hurt that I had been. It was kept here like Adam. I kept it in my bosom. I was afraid of what families would say and so I isolated and it didn't work out well. We can't do that. We have to educate and we have to teach our kids how to handle life. So boys, I know there's a lot that have graduated, a lot going to college, a lot in college. It's not a rite of passage for you, in God's eyes, to have sex with a girl before you're married, while you're a teenager. It doesn't, there's no notch in a belt or a gun or anything like that that makes that good. Girls giving yourself to some boy that thinks that is a rite of passage doesn't make them love you. It's not what God wants from us. Every person, every person that you may have sex with will take a little piece of your life. And you multiply that over the promiscuity that's going on in the world and see how much of your life is gone and see how much of it we can get back. 
What really makes you a man or woman in God's eyes is that you say no to the world, that you model the life of Christ. The truth trumps these feelings. Proverbs 1 and verse 10, Solomon said, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. He knew what was out there. 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verses 11. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believer in word, in conduct, in love, in purity, in faith, in spirit. Now listen, he's talking to a young man who people may despise for being good. He says, do not neglect, or first he says, sorry, till I come, give attention to reading to exhortation, to doctrine. He's talking to a young man who may not think that he has to do this yet, who may think that he needs to sow some wild oats and then he could come back and give attention to this. But the reality is he may not want to give attention to this when he comes back. He says meditate on these things Give yourself entirely to them. That's the advice. That's the inspired advice that comes from God for young people. And then there's a the feeling that my sin is too big for God to forgive. And truth trumps that every time. Second Chronicles, the 7th chapter in verse 14, says, If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and will pray and will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now I know that was in the old law. I get that. But there's promises for us today. Psalms, the 86th chapter in verse 5 says, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and you're abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. In Psalms 32 and verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. We're talking about David again and the sin of Bathsheba, of taking a man's wife, of murdering the wife's husband, and then the child dying. It's a big mess, right? I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And he will do it every time. We just have to do our part. Feeling that I can, cannot forgive someone that's harmed me. Have you ever felt that? You ever felt that you just can't forgive? Sometimes hurts are big. Sometimes they're the mountain that we can't do anything with. Colossians 3 and verse 12. Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. 
If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So people get hung up on that, you must do. Sometimes people don't want to be told what they have to do. This is the inspired word. And before, before that statement, this you must do, he said, even as Christ forgave you. There's the reason. It's the reason that we forgive others, because we've been forgiven. And if a man can hang on a cross after being beaten and whipped and spit on and crowned and made fun of, and he says, Father, forgive them, I think we can do the same. Lastly, feeling like God's will is a mystery. So have you ever had anybody tell you that they don't know what God's will is for them, or maybe even you don't know? Maybe you struggle with that. But truth trumps feelings. That feeling is evident here in the truth. Romans 12 and verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's God's will for you. Ephesians 5 and verse 17, it says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the, what the will of the Lord is. So the scripture says we can understand it, that it's there for us, that we don't have to wonder. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. Be thankful for everything. That's God's will for you. It's not a mystery. 1 Peter 2 and verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's God's will for you, to do good. It doesn't counter out anything else that he says is God's will. It's just another part of it. In John 4 and 34, Christ said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. His food. If we can make our food doing the will of God, cures all the problems, right? Not the struggles, not the heartache, but it, it heals us. It has our life laid out. Our food is to do His will. We don't have to wonder what, our, what the will is anymore. We're striving and we're looking and we're walking in it. I hope this study has been beneficial. We, we all have... I couldn't cover everybody's feelings. It's impossible, right? But we all struggle with them. The hope is that we learn to go here with our feelings. Does the Bible support our feelings? Or does it tell us that we're wrong and our feelings need to change? Because the truth isn't going to change. And we can say that we love God, but we don't want this part of him, and that doesn't work either. We need to take all of him, and why wouldn't we? He's a loving, merciful 
benevolent God who is joyous and sings over you and who is full of abundant mercy and goodness. If there's one here this evening who has never named the name of Christ that would like to do that, or if there's one here for some reason that you would desire the prayers of the church, we'd ask either one to come forward as we stand and sing.